Hello, and welcome to the Human Rights Podcast, held by the Irish Centre for Human Rights at the National University of Ireland, Galway. My name is Poonam Shoker, and with me today is Professor Aoife Nolan, a Professor of International Human Rights Law and Co-Director of the Human Rights Law Centre at the University of Nottingham, including the Vice President of the Council of Europe's European Committee of Social Rights and Academic Expert at Downton Street Chambers. So, Today, I thought we could begin with a brief outline of the roles and functions of the European Committee of Social Rights, if you would be kind enough to elaborate. Okay, so the European Committee of Social Rights, as some of your listeners may know, is the leading economics and social rights monitoring body in Europe. It's an expert treaty body. Um, Our role is to uh, monitor state implementation of the European Social Charter, the original version, which is from 1961, and the revised European Social Charter, um, which is from 1996. And we are elected to the committee as independent, impartial experts. And our job is to independently and impartially assess how well states are doing when it comes to giving effect to their obligations under the European Social Charter. Perfect, thank you. As I've seen from the 2020 case digest found on the committee's webpage, from what I understand, the independent experts are split into groups for the reporting stage. Absolutely. So we have two main functions as a committee. We hear collective complaints, which are brought under the additional protocol providing for a collective complaint system, which is from 1995. And then we also, that's essentially it's a complaints mechanism, uh, slightly different in nature to the ones you'd see with the UN treaty bodies, for instance, but very much the same idea. The complaints are brought, we come to, uh, we come to, we make findings with regards to them and states are expected to respond to those. Could you tell us a little bit more about the reporting process? Every year states are expected to report on a quarter of the chart of the of the charter rights set out in in the either the original charter or the revised charter, depending on whether or not they've signed up, which which version of the instrument they've signed up to. I think it's probably worth noting um, perhaps some of the differences between the 1961 charter and the 1996 charter. So where a state has signed up. The 1961 charter is obviously, at the time it was groundbreaking, it was very exciting, it contains a very wide range of labour rights and some social rights. Okay, so for instance, there are some uh, rights related to children, and there's a range of social rights focused on social and medical assistance and social security. However, by 1996, there was a recognition that this instrument was largely out of date. So as a result, we, we, there was a, a drafting process and there was the, and the 1996 version of the European Social Charter, the revised charter came into existence. And that instrument includes a much wider range of rights than we see under the 1961 instrument. So for instance, it has the rights of older persons, it has extensive protections for disabled people, it has more more developed uh, provisions with regards to equality and non-discrimination issues relating to different groups. And I think the reason that I flagged that is because if when we're when states are reporting to us, if they have signed up to the 1961 instrument, then 
those are the provisions that they report back. It's their conformity with those conditions, those provisions that we look at. However, if they signed up to the 1996 version of the charter, then we look at the state's performance through the lens of that charter. Uh, you were asking about how we divide up, and just to give you a sense of that, uh, so the way that we divide up our work when we're doing the reporting process is that the committee is made up of a president, two vice presidents, and a general sec uh, general secretary. And so we have um, we have a situation in which we sorry a general rapporteur, not a general secretary. Excuse me, we're not we're not we're not quite a trade union. Um, so we divide up, the way it works out is that the, each of the vice presidents leads a subcommittee, um, one of, you know, one of two subcommittees to look at um, a certain, you know, half of the rights that we're looking at as part of that cycle. So we have, if you think about it, in any one cycle, in any one year, we look at a quarter of the provision, provisions under, under the charter, and then we divide it into two, and that's just to make our work more manageable. And then we come back together at the end, and we sit in plenary where the members of both subcommittees come together with the president, with the rapporteur, with the committee's rapporteur, general rapporteur, and we discuss the draft as a whole. So even though we work on the, even though we work on different sets of provisions in the initial stage, the committee as a whole approves the conclusions on as the conclusions that come out of the reporting process before they're publicised. I just wanted to touch on the simplified reporting procedure that the committee utilises. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate on this for us. Absolutely. So in April 2014, the Committee of Ministers, uh, which is the Council of Europe Committee of Ministers, adopted new changes to the Charter's monitoring system. Um, and the most important of those was to simplify the reporting system for states parties that have accepted the collective complaints procedure. The idea, I mean, effectively being you've accepted the collective complaints procedure, you're accountable under this in a way that other states aren't. So the reporting procedure should thus be arguably of, of perhaps lesser importance because there is this other mechanism available uh, to, to those who feel uh, their rights aren't being uh, aren't being complied with. Um, and so what we have, the basis of that simplified reporting system is that states that have accepted the collective complaints procedure have to submit a simplified report every two years. Um, and we, the groups are, and the, the states which have accepted the collective complaints procedure so far have been divided into two groups, group A and group B, one of which is made up of eight states and the other of which is made up of seven states. Um, though, of course, that will change depending on the number of states that have actually that, that have actually signed up to the um, additional protocol providing for collective complaints. And effectively, you can see that rather than submitting a report on a quarter of all provisions every year, you're seeing a simplified report every two years. Thank you so much for your elaboration on the reporting procedures of the European Social Charter Committee. One particularly pertinent question I have for you, given that the work is divided amongst independent experts, has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted in any way the reporting procedures of the committee? When it came to COVID, a significant number of the UN treaty bodies had difficulties with regards to sitting. We, on the other hand, I think we pretty much straight away went into an online session. So we have been working through reports and collective complaints steadily uh, since really since the outbreak of the pandemic. We had a bit of a blip early on that affected one session 
but aside from that, we've been absolutely working our way through it. And I mean, it slowed us down slightly because there are some things that are less efficient online, but in fact, we're not, you know, we got our work done last year, uh, took a lot of extra, you know, a lot of extra effort on our parts, but we got it done. And this year we're more used to being online. So we're getting it done again. And as of, uh, as of our October 2021 session, we will actually be in person again, at least some of us. And our hope is that, you know, COVID allowing, that we will be able to uh, meet uh, as a full committee in the December in the December 2021 session. So certainly it's added pressure to us. And of course, in addition to the, you know, the, the challenge that it has posed for individual committee members and the hugely pressurized uh, and very hardworking secretariat, obviously COVID has forced a very sharp uh, shall we say, I wouldn't say rethink, but a sharp conceptualization or uh, analysis of charter rights and duties in light of pan pandemic conditions that hadn't been seen before during the lifetime of the charter. So, for instance, you'll see, uh, in addition to our change working methods, you'll see that we have issued two, st uh, one statement of interpretation, which is in status a bit like a UN treaty body general comment on the right to protection of health, which we issued in the spring of 2020. And then in April, 2020 this year, so April, 2021, sorry, April, 2021, we proceeded to issue a statement where we outlined beyond the article 11, right to protection of health, we outlined the connection between COVID-19 state responses to COVID and various charter provisions in a very wide ranging way. So we've had to, since COVID, we've had to think about how, how the charter uh, can be mobilized to address COVID, but also it's, you know, it's, it's forced us very helpfully to think about how the charter can serve as a roadmap for states seeking to respond to COVID, both in terms of the short term and in terms, and in the longer term. Thank you so much. It's great to hear how well the committee adapted to the obstacles put in place by the COVID-19 pandemic in regards to conducting its own reporting procedure. As you've mentioned, the committee has produced a statement on the right to health. Leading on from that, I wanted to ask you, what extent, in your view, do the charter requirements during the pandemic correspond to the requirements of various UN treaties? I think it's a really important question. So I think it's not surprising when you when you have, for instance, the UN Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights looking at the impact of the Charter on the right to health or labour rights, it's not surprising that their statements would, you know, not be a million miles or their views would not be a million miles away from ours, given the fact that there is some overlap, some considerable overlap between certainly the rights that are covered under, for instance, the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights and European Social Charter. That said, we have, our statement is far more detailed than anything that the UN treaty bodies have provided. Uh, we put a, a significant, I mean, they put a very significant amount of time and effort into their statements, but ours is a much, much fuller, fuller document that is meant to provide guidance to states guidance to states uh, in a way that probably wouldn't have been possible if we hadn't waited a while to issue it. So for instance, when you see when the key uh, UN, for instance, Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights or the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, when they issued their statements on COVID, it was in spring 2020. Whereas we, apart from the right to protection of health, held off until April, 2021. And this has meant that our, we have had the opportunity as COVID has developed to really think about how not just 
not just in the short or the immediate term, but to think about how uh, the economic and social rights that we monitor have been affected by COVID more broadly and into the longer term. Thank you for such an in-depth answer over the extent of overlap between the European Social Charter requirements and the requirements of our UN treaty bodies. I noticed in a number of decisions regarding collective complaints, the committee refers to a range of materials. I wondered if you could elaborate on the materials the committee refers to when assessing collective complaints. Uh, certainly, with pleasure. I mean, one of the things that we do, you know, we're, we're like a lot of uh, regional and indeed international human rights systems in that we look, we, uh, there are times when we look beyond our own, our own, our own, our own, our own, um, sorry, founding documents. So why do we do it? I mean, there are a range of reasons why regional and international human rights bodies look beyond their own systems. I mean, it can be to fill gaps in the framework or to find persuasive sources of interpretation for rights um, or to find or demonstrate support for the approach that that system is taking and or to contextualize their own approach. Right. So those are just some of the reasons that bodies such as our own might look beyond their own basic or basic instruments. And so what we have made clear in our work, starting, uh, and it's probably most articulately said in our decision in the collective complaint, uh, DCI in the Netherlands, which is complaint number uh, 47 of 2008, we make clear that the committee interprets the charter in light of the rules set out in the Vienna Convention, the Law of Treaties, 1969, which is absolutely what other human rights bodies tend to do as well. And and Article 313C of that treaty indicates that account is to be taken of any relevant rules of international law applicable in the relations between the parties. And we make clear in DCI in the Netherlands that the charter should so far as possible be interpreted in harmony with other rules of international law of which it forms part. And we've reiterated that in a number of occasions that the charter, for instance, uh, is that you know, the charter should be interpreted in light of relevant international instruments. So what we, and you know, we see a very strong commitment to this in our work uh, since uh, the DCI and Netherlands decision. You'll see, if you look at our decisions, you'll see the structure of our collective complaints decisions frequently include a specific section on international and domestic law, right? So actually set out there as part of the structure of the complaint. And even before that decision, even before that decision, you saw strong reference to international sources and standards in our work. And so, I mean, there's a whole range of different ways in different sources we've, we've referred to. Unsurprisingly, given that it's our sister instrument, we make reference to the European Convention on Human Rights um, and the work of the European Court of Human Rights. An example of where we did that was in the context of our Transgender Europe and ILGA and the Czech Republic decision, which focused on gender identity. And in that case, we looked very heavily at the decision. We looked extensively at the decisions that the European Court of Human Rights had made in the same area. We look at, we look at uh, reports in the Council of Europe Commissioner of Human Rights, uh, you know, resolutions or other outputs, the Committee of Ministers or the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. And we also, of course, look at the work of other Council of Europe monitoring bodies. So, for instance, the European Committee for the Prevention of Torture or GRETA uh, or the Lan GRETA or the Lanzarote Committee, which oversee the trafficking and convention and the convention focused on eliminating uh, sexual exploitation, sexual abuse of the child. So we, we, we look, we look 
we look at those sources both in order to kind of, I suppose, contextualize uh, our sense of what the standards under the charter under the charter themselves require, but also it can be very useful if we look at the Commissioner for Human Rights report, that can provide us with very valuable information about the situation in a particular, in a, in a particular uh, national context, for instance. For instance, if the Commissioner has visited a particular place and has highlighted the issue that we are looking at in that particular collective complaint. We use UN, UN materials, not just in our collective complaints, but also, for instance, recently we made use of work of the UN Committee on uh, the Rights of Persons with Disabilities to develop our understanding of inclusive education under the Charter, um, because that's a very important source there. We rely on ILO conventions, we look at the European Code of Social Security, we look at European Union materials. But I think it's really important to flag that even though we draw on and make reference to the different sources, we are noting them, we are referring to them, we are informed by them, we are not following them, right? We are absolutely focused on our mandate and we are protective of our mandate and we are also conscious that if we go outside our mandate that will of course have implications for the legitimacy of our decision making um, and in addition we have our mandate we're not there to apply the mandate of other bodies and we're not our mandate isn't something that is somehow subordinate say to UN treaty UN treaties or any other instruments we're very much there we're very much using materials to materials from other systems to inform our approach, not to not to supplant it or for us to simply, you know, say, oh, well, this is what the court says. So obviously we say the same thing. That's not what we're doing at all. Thank you so much for providing an in-depth insight into how sources are utilized by the committee. Digressing from this though, in your view, what would be the challenges facing the committee as we move from the COVID-19 pandemic? I think, uh, I don't think there's any uh, treaty body in the world that feels it's adequately resourced. Um, we are not a full-time uh, full body. Uh, we are part-time experts. We meet, you know, seven times a year for up to, normally up to about five days, five days um, per session. We may also have a few extra sessions, which we've had to start doing because we simply haven't been able to get our work done in the set time. That's very challenging if you think about it. That's a, a big time commitment from people who have full-time jobs on top of it. We also have a situation in which we have a very hardworking, hard-pressed secretariat who are bluntly under-resourced in terms of the amount of work they have to do, the drafts they have to prepare, the support they have to provide to the committee. And that hampers them, but and ultimately that hampers us in our work. And ultimately, moving on to a third level, it hampers the general Council of Europe efforts to push forward in the social rights area. So I think that's I think that's a key part of it. I mean, there's a, a number of different recommendations uh, that have been made uh, by different people over time. I'm not going to comment on any of these substantively because it's not my place. Um, this is something the committee is working on at the moment, people have suggested increasing the number of committee members. There's been an argument for greater resources for the European Social De Charter Department. There's been a suggestion of rationalization of processes. There have been suggestions about expansion of processes to enhance state dialogue. A whole range of different things are out there. But what I would say is we're hard pressed, we're under-resourced and we are working extremely hard. We're also victims of our own success because what's wonderful is that the charter's profile has, in, has you know, gone up 
and attention paid to the work of the committee has increased so much over even the last five years. As a result, we're getting much more engagement from trade unions, from society, from employers organizations in the context of our reporting process. You know, we get, uh, we get you know, information from these stakeholders. We have more and more complaints are being sent in under the collective complaints process. Again, this is marvelous, but of course that's increased work. And as you have, if you have more cases and the same number of committee members and the same resources in the secretariat, then of course the time it takes to decide those cases, both admissibility and merits is going to get longer. And when you can see that in our work that say, we have gone from probably a turnaround time time of about a year to now considerably more that and we're certainly not looking at European Court of Human Rights levels of pressure but we are uh, we are well beyond what we can deal with easily uh, easily and quickly at this point um, so I think that certainly has to be borne in mind as we head into this period of significant change including there's now a process uh, underway where the committee of ministers will be looking at the reporting process and uh, as a com committee members, and of course, anyone who's interested in social rights in Europe will be very interested to see what they recommend around the reporting system in terms of, you know, is it simply about adding to the committee's functions and responsibilities? Is it about rationalization or will we see something else completely? So it's an exciting time, but it is very much a challenging time too. And COVID has, of course, exacerbated that. I think I should also say it's enormously rewarding. It's an, you know, it's a, it's an honor. I mean, it's a genuine honor to serve on the committee and the quality, the work is magnificent. The secretariat are incredibly hardworking. My colleagues are absolutely fantastic. It's, I mean, when I say we're pressurized, we're not at our wits end, we're not about to collapse. I'm simply saying how we can improve, but I wouldn't want to give the impression that this is a hideous, stressful, pressurized experience. It's an absolute priv privilege to be a member of the committee and to be involved in what is incredibly important work around social rights monitoring in Europe. I'm afraid that's all we have time for for today. I'd like to thank Professor Eva Nolan, not only for joining us here today, but also for providing us with such an in-depth and technical explanation of how the European Social Charter Committee operates, as well as encapsulating its role in the future. This has been the Human Rights Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.